The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, and welcome to Berean Bible Church. Today is a very important day in history. It's the first Sunday after the Passover which biblically was called the Feast of First Fruits. And this day is not about bunnies or colored eggs or Easter baskets. This day is about the resurrection from the dead. Now, most people, Christians or not, are familiar with the resurrection of Christ. I mean, people around the world today celebrate what they call Easter. And they understand, at least in some small way, that this is about Christ's resurrection from the dead. But what most Christians don't understand is that the exact date of Christ's death and His resurrection were foretold by God 1,600 years before they happened. They were prophesied in the Feast of Yahweh. The exact date of the resurrection of Christ was foretold in the Feast of the Lord. Listen, 1,600 years before it happened. So this morning, I want us to look at the biblical significance of the Jewish feast days. And when you study the feasts of Yahweh, you'll find out that there are seven of them. They're listed in different places in Scripture, but they're listed in chronological order in Leviticus 23. These feasts are a study in typology. And the Feasts of Yahweh, they actually convey two 40-year Exodus periods, the type and the anti-type. The first Exodus period is when Israel was removed from the bondage of Egypt at Passover. And they were put in the wilderness on a physical journey to a physical promised land. Now the more important, the anti-type, is the spiritual Exodus. And this exodus runs from the cross to the year A.D. 70. In this exodus, Israel, after the Spirit, left its bondage to the law of sin and death and begins on a 40-year spiritual journey to a spiritual inheritance, the kingdom of God, or the new heavens and new earth. So let's look this morning at these seven feasts and see how they tie in to what we're talking about this morning. Leviticus 23.4 These are the appointed feasts of Yahweh, the holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at the time appointed for them. Now, the words here, holy convocations, is the Hebrew word mikra, and it means a rehearsal. So the feasts of Yahweh were appointed times of worship for Israel that would serve as dress rehearsals of prophetic events that were to happen in the future. And through these feasts, Yahweh was showing Israel what He is going to do. These are prophetic events. They were pictures of the coming of Messiah and His work. So for 1,600 years, God, through the feasts, is showing Israel what He was going to do. So these feasts are both literal feasts celebrated in Israel every year, and their types of God's prophetic calendar of events for the church. 
The first feast is the feast of Passover. It says, in the first month, on the 14th day of the month, at twilight, is Yahweh's Passover. Now, the typical significance of Passover is very clear in the New Testament writings. There's probably no Mosaic institution that's a more perfect type than this. Passover occurs in the spring of the year on the 14th day of the Hebrew month Abib or Nisan, which is March or April to our calendar. Originally, this month was called Abib, but it was called Nisan after the post-exilic period. Now, Saturday, not yesterday, but a week ago, March 27th, beginning at sundown to Sunday, March 28th at sundown, was Passover. Passover is a type or a picture of something much greater. It pictured the redemption of God's elect through the sacrifice of the sinless Son of God, the Lord Yeshua. In the evening, on the 14th of Nisan, at exactly 3 p.m., the Passover lamb was to be killed. And 1,600 years after Passover was instituted, Yeshua... The Lamb of God was killed on the very same day at the very same time as the Passover Lamb. The 14th of Nisan at 3 p.m. And like the Lamb, the Passover Lamb, Yeshua, was without spot or blemish, 1 Peter 1.19. And none of His bones were broken, John 19.33. The Lamb, the Passover Lamb, was a type, and Yeshua is the Lamb of God, the anti-type, the fulfillment of that type. Now, the second feast was called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. On the 15th day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to Yahweh. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. Now, the Feast of Unleavened Bread takes place on the 15th of Nisan, and it lasts for seven days. Now, most people try to make this picture the burial of Yeshua. See, that way you have Passover picturing His death, unleavened bread picturing His burial, and first fruits picturing the resurrection. The only problem with that is it's not biblical. Sounds good, and it plays nice, but unleavened bread can't picture His burial because He wasn't buried on the Feast of Unleavened Bread. On the 15th, He was buried on the 14th, the same day He was crucified. Speaking of the dead body of Yeshua, Luke says this, Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid it in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. So the preparation was the Passover day, the 14th of Nisan. So Yeshua was buried on the same day that he was killed, which was Passover. He was put in the earth before the sun set on the 14th of Nisan. Now, it says unleavened bread starts on the 15th of Nisan. That's the day after Passover, 14th. Now we got 15. It pictures deliverance. Because on that day, the children of Israel left Egypt. In the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and they crossed the Red Sea by the end of the seventh day feast. So this is, feast is picturing deliverance from these peop- for these people. Unleavened Bread, seven day feast that pictures a perfect redemption. Now the third feast is first fruits. That's today. Leviticus 23, 9-11 says, And Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, 
Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. And he shall wave the sheaf before Yahweh, so that you may be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. Now, the word first fruits comes from the Hebrew word reshit. And it's the same word used in Genesis 1.1, translated beginning. It can be used for the beginning of an event, but literally has the meaning of a summit, or the choices of the choice, or the best. So what date is the feast to take place on? Passover was to take place on the 14th. Unleavened bread is to take place on the 15th. What date's first fruit? It says right there, you see it? What's it say? It says, on the day after the Sabbath. Listen, this is really important. There's no date given for this feast. The inspired text says the third feast occurs on the day after the Sabbath. Now, most scholars say that the Feast of First Fruits took place on the 16th of Nisan. Now, I'm like, well, then why didn't he just say that? You got the 14th, you got the 15th, the next day, that's the 16th. That's right, that's a no brainer. But the problem is they take the Sabbath here to refer to the Sabbath of the first day of unleavened bread. And if that was true, he would have just said the 16th. It made everything simple. I believe that the Sabbath referred to here is the weekly Sabbath, the seventh day of the week. And there is no date given in Scripture for the Feast of first fruits because it's on the day after the Sabbath. Listen, it is always on a Sunday. And the only way it can always be on a Sunday if there's not a date connected to it. Because the date would change from year to year. But this, we always celebrate Resurrection Sunday on Sunday. Right? Okay? It's on a Sunday. It's on the first day of the week. That's why he didn't give a date. Because it changes. So first fruits is always on a Sunday. And as to the significance of the Feast of First Fruits, as with the other feasts, there's really no room for doubt or speculation. It represents Christ's resurrection. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, 20-23. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, then it is coming, those who belong to Christ. So on one particular morning, on the first day of the week, the feast of first fruits were being waved before the altar in the temple by the priest. And on that particular morning, some women were heading to an empty tomb. 1,600 years before the resurrection of Christ, Yahweh predicted in type and shadow that Yeshua would be crucified on the 14th of Nisan, and that He would rise from the dead three days later on the first day of the week. And listen, people, this happened exactly as God said it would. And what I want us to understand here is that prophecy proves the truthfulness of the Bible. God said certain things would happen, and they happened. And there's no other book in the world that contains any kind of specific prophecies found all throughout the pages of Scripture. 
Now let's talk for a minute about the resurrection. This is Resurrection Sunday. The traditional view today that the church holds on resurrection is that when a believer dies, their body goes into the grave and their spirit goes to heaven to be with the Lord. They are in a disembodied state awaiting for the resurrection at the end of time. Then at the end of time, the Lord returns, resurrects all the dead, decayed bodies of the saints, puts them all back together, and then changes them physic- these physically resurrected bodies into spiritual, immortal bodies on the way to heaven. That's what the church teaches pretty much for today. That, that's basically what the church teaches about resurrection. But is that what the Scripture teach about resurrection? See, in order to understand resurrection, we need to understand the when of resurrection. And when I talk about resurrection, right now I'm talking about the believer's resurrection, not Christ's resurrection. All right, Christ was resurrected on first fruits. He came out of the grave in a physical body. He was physically resurrected from the dead. But in order to understand our resurrection, we need to understand the when. Now notice what Paul says during his trial before Felix. In Paul's defense, he makes this statement. He says, but I confess to you that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Now, the words will be here in the ESV are from the Greek word mellow. And whenever mellow in the present active indicative is combined with an infinitive, it is consistently translated about to. So Paul is telling his first century audience, there is about to be a resurrection from the dead. Now, if we're going to understand what Paul's saying about resurrection, we need to understand audience relevance. Who is Paul talking to here? Here's what we have to get, believers. He's not talking to us because we're not there, all right? He's talking to Felix. He's talking to Ananias. He's talking to Tertullius and the elders. That's who he's speaking to. And he tells them they're alive in the first century because he's talking to them. He tells them, not us, there is about to be a resurrection from the dead. So if the timing of the resurrection was soon, in Paul's day, about to be, What does that tell us about the nature of the resurrection? It tells us that it must be spiritual. Time defines nature. If we know that the resurrection happened in the first century, then we know it was spiritual, not physical. Physical bodies didn't come flying up out of the graves. And in order to understand resurrection, we need to understand death. Because resurrection, biblically, is resurrection from the dead. And the death that man needs to be resurrected from is spiritual. See, when Adam sinned, he died. He didn't die physically that day. He lived for 900 years after that. But he died spiritually. His relationship, his fellowship with God was broken. And man's problem today is spiritual. It's spiritual death. It's separation from God. And because of Adam's sin, the Bible teaches we are all born Dead in sin, separated from God. That's how we come into this world. 
Because Adam was a federal representative of the human race. He stood in our place. He sinned. We sinned. But through Yeshua, the last Adam, came the resurrection from the dead. See, Yeshua came to restore what Adam had lost, which was fellowship with God. And Yeshua came to redeem man from death, to resurrect man back into the presence of God. The Bible is God's book about His plan to restore the spiritual union of His creation. Resurrection is not about bringing physical bodies out of the graves. That's not what it's about. It's about restoring man into God's presence. Now, let me make this clear again. I'm not talking about Christ. Christ was physically resurrected. And and so people say, well, He was physically resurrected, won't we be? No, Christ's physical resurrection was a sign to the apostles that He had done what He promised to do. Here's something I think we have to understand. Prior to the completion of Yeshua's messianic work, people who died didn't go to heaven. Everybody who died before Christ finished His work went to Sheol, the grave, a holding place of the dead, and they waited for the atoning work of Christ and the resurrection from the dead. So the Bible teaches that to be taken out of Sheol and brought into the presence of the Lord is what the Bible calls resurrection. Resurrection, again, has nothing to do with physical bodies coming out of graves. According to the Bible, when was the resurrection to take place? Well, Scripture testified that the time of the resurrection was to be at the end of the Old Covenant age. In Daniel 12, 13, it says, But go your way till the end. That's the end of that Old Covenant he's talking about, not the end of the world. And you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of days. Now, we know... This to have happened in A.D. 70 with the destruction of the Jewish temple. The disciples knew that the fall of the temple and the destruction of the city meant the end of the Old Covenant age and the inauguration of a new age. And listen, we should understand that today. Because since that happened in A.D. 70, when the temple was destroyed, when the city was burned, the Jews have never sacrificed an animal since then. And if you know anything about Judaism, it's all about sacrifice. They have not sacrificed an animal. Why? Because it was over. God said the Old Covenant is done. Every day, every single day in Judaism, there was a morning sacrifice. There was an evening sacrifice. On holidays, there was tons of sacrifices. On the feast, we're going to talk about in a little bit here, the Feast of Tabernacles, They had this, in, in a seven-day feast, they sacrificed 70 bulls over the seven days. 13 the first day, 12 the second, 11, 10, 9. 70 bulls. Israel is about sacrifice because these sacrifices pointing to the coming of Christ who would fulfill these sacrifices. So we know that when Jerusalem was destroyed, when the temple was destroyed, that system is over. Now people today are clinging to Judaism and God's going to revise it. No, He's done with it. He shut it down. And since we know that the resurrection is past, because Paul said it was about to happen, We know that it was spiritual and not physical. The resurrection of the dead took place at the end of the Old Covenant in A.D. 70. It was not a biological resurrection of dead, decayed bodies. It was a release 
from Sheol of all who had been waiting through the centuries to be reunited to God in the heavenly kingdom. Believers all through the ages waited because this couldn't happen until Christ had finished the sacrifice. Now, what about us? All right, what about believers who have lived since AD 70? When are we, when are we resurrected? Well, let's go to Yeshua's words to Martha in John 11, 25 and 26. Yeshua said to her, you know the background here, right? Her brother died, Lazarus is dead, and if you would have been here, he wouldn't have died, and all this. And Yeshua says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Because she says, you know, Yeshua says, your brother will rise. She goes, I know he'll rise at the end of the age, because she understood resurrection takes place at the end of the Jewish age. She knew that. And he said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Now, follow with me here, okay? Whoever believes in me, this is an old covenant believer. Yeshua's still alive. He's talking to them. Though he die, that's physical death. Yet shall he live. That's spiritually. He will come to life spiritually at some time. But watch, now he changes. And he says, and everyone who lives, everyone who's physically alive past me, and believes in me, that's the new covenant believer, shall never die. That is physically. Do you believe this? So in these verses, here's what you have to understand. There's two categories of believers being discussed. Those who would die before the resurrection, old covenant believers, and those who would not. We are living post-resurrection. We are the ones who live physically, who believe in Him. We're new covenant believers and we'll never die spiritually. We receive a resurrection from the dead when we trust in Christ. Believers, the Bible teaches that we are all born dead in sins and trespasses. God gives us life so we can trust Him. When He gives us life, that is a resurrection from the dead. So you and I, if we're believers, we don't need a resurrection because we've already been brought into His presence spiritually. Yeshua gives spiritual life which is a resurrection from spiritual death. We have eternal life and we can never die spiritually. Nothing can separate us from God. Therefore, we don't need a physical resurrection. Now, at death, our body is going to go to dust, go to the ground, and we will receive an immortal spiritual body to dwell in the eternal realm. It happens that quickly, believer. This body drops, you're in your new one, you're in the realm, and you're there Forever, No resurrection needed, no waiting around ever needed because this is about spiritual things, not physical. And we are alive in His presence now. So Passover pictures substitutionary death of Yeshua, the Passover Lamb. The Feast of Unleavened Bread pictures redemption that the death purchased. And the Feast of Firstfruits pictures the resurrection of Messiah. Now, the fourth feast is the Feast of Weeks, known in Hebrews as Shavuot. It's called the Feast of Weeks because God specifically told the sons of Jacob they were to count seven weeks from first fruit. See, there, this is another feast, there's no date. And the reason there's not a date for this is because you have to count 50 days from first fruits. And so you can't have a date because it's going to shift all the time. 
All right? Leviticus 23, 15. You shall count seven full weeks from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering. You shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall present a grain offering, a new grain, to Yahweh. Okay? So, seven weeks are 49 days. And one day, it says the day after, that brings a total of 50 days. So the fourth feast was to occur precisely 50 days after first fruits, after Yeshua's resurrection. So Shavuot marked the beginning of the summer wheat harvest, just as Israel's early feast of first fruits marked the beginning of the spring barley harvest. Now, in the Greek language, Shavuot was known as Pentecost. And you're probably familiar with it under that name, because Pentecost means 50th. And since it was celebrated on the 50th day from first fruits, it became called Pentecost. Now, 50 days biblically has the fragrance of Jubilee. If you're familiar with the Jubilee year in the Bible, every 50 years, boom, you forgive all debts. It's a 50-year concept of releasing the captives. And although I can't prove it, I believe that A.D. 70 was a jubilee year. Now, from the works of Josephus, there's recorded that 6970 was a sabbatical year, which could suggest that A.D. 70 was a jubilee year. Again, I can't prove this, but I think there's strong indications that that is true. Now, a very notable historical event happened on the first Shavuot, and that was the giving of the Ten Commandments. All right, so... Israelites left on Passover. They started out on, on the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, at 50 days later, after the free, Feast of First Fruits, they end up on the mountain and they're given the Ten Commandments. And it's interesting, the rabbis have gone through the careful arithmetic in the Torah and they've come to the conclusion thousands of years ago that the law was given at Sinai on Pentecost which was 50 days after the Feast of Firstfruits. So they associate the Feast of Weeks as the feast that gave them the Torah. This is seen as the birthday of God's covenant relationship with Israel. So Judaism tells us they were born on Pentecost. Hang on to that. So far we've seen that very significant Christian events happen on these Hebrew holidays. Well, what significant Christian event happened on Pentecost? The Israelites associated the Feast of Weeks as the feast that gave them the Torah. What do Christians receive on Pentecost? We also receive the Torah. But we receive the new living Torah written on the heart. The church was born on Shavuot, or as we call it, Pentecost. Now, <clears throat> excuse me. Now, when you hear the word Pentecost, what do you think of? I mean, what should come to your mind is the birth of the church, the beginning of the new covenant. Yeshua was resurrected on the Feast of First Fruits. Fifty days after the resurrection of Yeshua, the promised new covenant arrived. In Acts chapter 2, it says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they're all together in one place. What are they doing there all together? They're there to celebrate Shavuot, the Jewish holiday. And suddenly, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared on them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So these Jews had come together, come to Jerusalem to celebrate Shavuot. 
But the Lord had something else in mind, something far more spectacular for the people. This day, the believing Jews became the first fruit members of the new church, God's church, the church of Yeshua the Messiah. And scholars marked the historical Pentecost in Jerusalem as the spiritual birthday of the church. Fifty days after the first fruits feast in Egypt, the law was given to the nation Israel on Mount Sinai, written on tablets of stone. Fifty days after the final first fruits, the resurrection of Christ, the law was given to the church, the Israel of God, written upon their hearts by the Spirit of God. So both the giving of the law on Mount Sinai and the giving of the new covenant through the Holy Spirit to the 120 in the temple were events that occurred on the very same day of the lunar calendar, the day of Pentecost. Now, to natural Israel, Passover was their freedom from the bondage of Egypt. Unleavened bread was their separation from the land of Egypt into the immersion, their baptism in the Red Sea and the cloud in the wilderness. Finally, God led the people to Mount Sinai where they experienced Pentecost. And God revealed Himself to the people in a deeper and greater way than He had previously. But between Pentecost and the next feast, which is trumpets, there's an interval of time of about four months. And these months in between were historically the driest months agriculturally for Israel. There was also, there's no holy convocation. There's no time when the nation Israel gathered before the Lord in His sanctuary for anything special. It's just four months of kind of dryness, of kind of emptiness, of kind of quiet. And here's what we need to understand. And this is, you got to grab this part, okay? Because listen, what I've just talked about so far, the four feasts, I don't think you'd get much disagreement about anybody. I don't care what their eschatological beliefs are. They all pretty much agree. That all happened. That's all happened. It's all done. But this gap can be seen as being prophetic in a negative way, just as the rest of the feasts are positively prophetic. The newly redeemed nation of Israel experienced Passover through Pentecost, from leaving Egypt, their place of bondage, up to receiving the covenant from God on Sinai. However, because of unbelief and stubbornness, except for Joshua and Caleb, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And it was a different generation that entered the promised land. And this 40-year-month gap is seen to be a reminder of this 40 years. This four-month gap is a picture of the 40 years of their wandering. Charity, if you could put me... I don't even know if we're showing this live, but if you could put me full screen. Um, Nope, okay. You see Pentecost there in 8070. In between, we've got a 40-year period. The blue is the new covenant. The new covenant is growing. It starts at Pentecost and it continues to grow. And once you get past 8070, there's no more old covenant. That is done because in 8070, the temple shut down. The, the city's destroyed. So that's the end of the old age, this age, what the Bible calls this age. But this is literally a second exodus. It's another 40-year period. See, the exodus out of Egypt and into the promised land by the children of Israel under Moses is a direct shadow of the exodus of the New Testament generation from the cross to the entrance into eternal rest, which was 40 years later. It's a second exodus. Now, let's look at some of the comparisons between these two 40-year exodus periods and see if there really are type and shadow here, all right? The first was preceded by physical slavery, all right? The bondage of the Hebrews in Egypt. The second was preceded by spiritual slavery. 
man's bondage and sin and death. One introduced the first Passover with the blood of lambs. The other fulfilled the type with the sacrifice of the final Passover lamb, Yeshua. One brought God's people physical deliverance by crossing through the Red Sea. The other brought God's people spiritual deliverance by the working of the cross of Christ. The first established a temporal covenant of God with the people that He chose, which was the Old Covenant. The second established a permanent covenant, the New Covenant. Fifty-five days after the first Passover in Egypt, the law was given to the nation Israel on Mount Sinai, written on tables of stones. Listen, and 3,000 people died. Fifty-five days after the final Passover was sacrificed, the law was given to Israel of God, written on their hearts by the Spirit of God, and 3,000 people received life. Fascinating, huh? The Old Covenant was the administration of death, Paul says in Corinthians. And when that was given, 3,000 people died because God told them what not to do, and they got into adultery right away, and God killed 3,000 of them. But on the New Covenant, life is given. And very few would disagree with the above points are fulfillments of the shadows given of the Exodus. But the correlation doesn't stop with the initial working of the Exodus. It continues with the entrance into the temporal land of rest 40 years later. And just as the children of faith were allowed to enter the temporal land of rest the first time, the children of faith in the generation directly following the cross of Christ were given entrance into the eternal land of rest. With each covenant, a 40-year transition period followed the initial act of deliverance into the entrance of the land of promise. With both of them, during both periods, the people saw God's works for 40 years. (coughs) In the wilderness, God manifests Himself to the people by signs and wonders. He gave them daily manna. He provided miraculous meat and water for them. They had the appearance of the cloud and the fiery pillar that they followed. Miraculous things for these 40 years. When they got in the land, the manna stopped. The miraculous stopped. In the transition period of the New Covenant, the apostles had special gifts of healing and prophecy and power to cast out demons that testified to the coming of the kingdom of God and the destruction of the wicked. During both periods, the wicked were severed from among the just and not allowed to enter the land of promise. Now, at the end of the first 40 year period, the Israelites of faith entered the temporal land of promise in which God enabled them to defeat their physical foes. At the end of the second year, 40 year period, salvation was complete and God's people entered the eternal promised land in which God enabled them to defeat their spiritual enemies. These feasts, as we have taught, are both literal feasts celebrated by Israel every year, and they're types of God's prophetic calendar of events for the church. And at the end of the dry season, after the four months, came the fall feast. There was three more of them. And all three of these feasts took place in the month of Tishri, or for us, it would be September. Now, again, I'm telling you, everybody would agree with me so far, all right? But when we get into the fall feast, these have not happened yet, the church will say. These are somewhere off into our future. So the 40 years kind of blew apart, all right? Because it's thousands of years and they still haven't happened yet. But let's look at these fall feasts. The fifth feast was the fall, of the fall feast is the Feast of Trumpets. 
Leviticus 23, 23 says, And Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall observe a day of solemn rest, a memorial, proclaim with a blast of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. You shall not present a food offering to Yahweh. You shall present a food offering to Yahweh. All right, so he says, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, and then he says there's the blast of trumpets. So this feast is known in Judaism as Rosh Hashanah, the head of the year, the first of the year. But it's never known by that name in Scripture. You're not going to find that in the Bible. Now, there's several things about this feast that should really, I think, pique our interest. First, it's to be celebrated on the first day of the month. Right? Now, that probably doesn't mean a lot to us, but if you think of a lunar calendar, you'll understand. Secondly, the feast was to be celebrated on the first day of the seventh month. And thirdly, the feast marked by blowing of trumpets. Now, the Hebrew word here, teruah, means an alarm, a signal, a sound of tempest, a shout, a blast. Why is this significant that the feast was on the first day of the month? Well, the Feast of Trumpets is the only one of the feasts, only seven, that began on the first day of the month. And the Hebrew months each began with a new moon. They used a lunar calendar. Anybody know what a new moon looks like? It's not the big full moon. It's a little, little sliver. You see, that's the new moon. Okay, all of a sudden, the new moon's there. You see it. Well, all the other feasts occurred during the middle of their respective months when the moon would have been near full and the nights would have been full of light. But this is dark because there's just a little crescent up there. The beginning of each month was originally dependent upon the sighting of the new moon when it was just a crescent. The nights would be dark and very little moonlight. And the precise timing of the new moon was not always easy to determine due to weather conditions, due to a lack of witnesses. You know, how do we know when it actually starts? Well, two concurring witnesses sighting the first sliver of the new moon determined when each moon was. The two, to two witnesses, they would see the moon and they'd go to attest to it before the Sanhedrin in the temple. This could happen during either of several days, depending on when the witnesses come. And since no one knew when the witnesses would come, no one knew when the Feast of Trumpets would start. You, hopefully you're starting to pick up what's happening here, okay? No one's going to know the day or the hour, all right? After the appearance of the new moon was confirmed... Then the Feast of Trumpets could begin and the rest of the fall feasts could accurately be calculated from that date. But the Feast of Trumpets is also considered a high Sabbath. No work is to be done. Therefore, all preparations for the Feast of Trumpets had to be made in advance. And since no one knew exactly when the new moon's appearance was going to be, it kept the people in a continual state of alertness. We don't know. We've got to be alert. We've got to be watched. And here's the idea. Watchfulness is a critical ingredient of the feast. And the rabbis later added a second day to the feast to make sure they didn't miss it. And this need for watchfulness and preparedness in connection with the Feast of Trumpets is echoed and re-echoed throughout the New Testament in connection with the Lord's second coming. Alright, so this feast is about the return of Christ. The first four feasts were about the first coming. These last three feasts are about the second coming. In Matthew 24, 42, it says, Therefore stay awake, for you don't know when the day of the Lord is coming. So the Feast of Trumpets is Israel's dark day. 
It occurred at the new moon when the primary night light of the heavens is darkened. Israel's prophets repeatedly warned of a coming day of judgment for the nation. It was called the Day of the Lord. And it was to occur at the end of the Jewish age. The Day of the Lord was a time when the Lord poured out His wrath upon the nation Israel. The prophet Amos spoke of this dark day of judgment in Amos chapter 5. And according to Joel 2.1, the trumpet was to be used to usher in the day of the Lord. So we see the spiritual antitype of the Feast of Trumpets in the fall of Jerusalem and the parousy of our Lord in AD 70. Thus the blowing of the trumpet in Matthew 24, the scene was set and Christ fulfilled the feast. And guess what month it was when Jerusalem fell? Take a wild guess. Come on. Josephus says the city was taken on September 8th. That's what it'd be. That's Tishri in our calendar. After the last siege had lasted about five months. So, in the New Testament, the trumpet was to be blown at the resurrection. And Paul equates the resurrection of the dead with the sound of God's shofar. What are the similarities between the resurrection of the dead and the Feast of Trumpets? Well, first, they both were to occur on an unknown and undetermined day and hour. Secondly, they both were announced by the sounding of the shofar. The blast of the shofar was a type of that blast which called the faithful home to be with the Lord, but it was also a type that was used to call judgment on a nation that refused to come to Christ. So the Feast of Trumpets is fulfilled at the resurrection of the dead, which immediately precedes the day of the Lord. Both are heralded by the blast of the shofar. Now, we see the type of this feast in Joshua chapter 6, with the destruction of Jericho at the end of a 40-year exodus. They just got finished with 40 years. They get into the land, and the city, Jericho, comes falling down. Seven priests... With the ark of God in the midst, march with seven trumpets around the wall of Jericho for six days. On the seventh day, they march around seven times. And at the close of the march, the trumpets were blown, the people shouted, and God caused the walls of Jericho to collapse. And the victory was complete. That was their victory into the promised land. Because from there on out, everybody heard what happened and they were afraid to death. Even when they got to Jericho, the people of Jericho were already afraid to death. They'd already heard what God had done. So the events of Jericho offered a graphic image and actual prophecy of the events of the close of the Jewish age 40 years after Pentecost when they were given seven angels with seven trumpets pronounced judgment. And here's an interesting side note. Ancient Jewish tradition held that the resurrection of the dead would occur on Rosh Hashanah. Reflecting this tradition, Jewish gravestones were often engraved with the shofar. God's last trumpet and the resurrection of the righteous are intricately connected in the New Testament. So in Joshua, we see the city falling down after the 40-year wandering. We get through the 40-year wandering in the New Testament, and what happens? Jerusalem is destroyed. Another city wiped out. All right, let's look at the six feasts, the Day of Atonement. Leviticus 23, 27. Now on the tenth day of this seventh month, the day of atonement, it shall be for you a time of holy convocation. You shall afflict yourself and present a food offering to Yahweh. The day of atonement is Israel's sixth instituted holy day. It occurs in the autumn of the year. On the Hebrew calendar, it falls on the tenth day of Tishri. 
the 17th Hebrew month. Again, this roughly corresponds to September or October, our time. Yom Kippur, Kippur was known as the, the most solemn day of the year for the people of Israel. It was often simply referred to as the day. It was a day of atonement was made for the priest and his family, for the community and for the most holy place, for the tent of meeting and the altar. It was a very solemn day. Now, if you examine the Scriptures concerning the second coming of Christ, you will find that it uses Yom Kippur terminology. Because the Day of Atonement speaks of the return of Christ and the consummation of redemption. Redemption is complete with the atonement. And people wonder, why is in the Feast of Yahweh, why is atonement near the end? Because atonement doesn't come until the Lord returns. Luke 21, 28. Now, when these things began to take place, straighten up and raise up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Now, the, these things in this text is the destruction of Jerusalem. Destruction of Jerusalem, the second coming of Christ, and the fullness of redemption were synchronous events. Not until Christ returned could man be forgiven. All right, the seventh and the final feast was the Feast of Tabernacles. Speak to the people of Israel, saying, On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, and for seven days is the Feast of Booths to Yahweh. So this is the seventh feast on the seventh month. It was to last for seven days. Hopefully you know the number seven in biblical numerology is the number of completion, the number of perfection. This is the grand finale of God's plan of redemption. The Feast of Tabernacles is the most joyful and festival of all Israel's feasts. It's also the most important and prominent feast. This feast is mentioned more often in Scripture than any of the other feasts. This feast also served as a historical backdrop for Yeshua's teaching in John chapter 7 through 9. The Feast of Tabernacles was to celebrate and commemorate two things, and it's important that we understand this. What was this feast about? Number one, it was the end of the wandering in the desert of the children of Israel. Okay? They finally got, after 40 years, they're done, and now they're in the land. The wilderness, which I guess most of us don't grasp this at all, the wilderness is a place of chaos, death, and hostility. Biblically speaking, when you talk about the wilderness, that's a place where other gods are ruling. That's unholy ground. When the Israelite was with God and with his camp, they were safe. But out in the desert, there were other gods. And so now they were safe. They've been delivered there on the other side. They're tabernacling with God now because they made it through this hostile territory. Secondly, the feast agriculturally. It's a harvest festival. It's a celebration that God has provided the harvest. He's providing all we need. Now, the anti-typical fulfillment came at the end of the 40-year transition period from A.D. 30 to 70. When the Old Covenant came to an end, the New Covenant was fully consummated, and the inheritance of the new heavens and new earth arrived where we tabernacle there with God. Tabernacle speaks of the final rest. The 40 years are over. We've made it through hostile territory. We're now resting in the presence of God. And the Lord not only gathered His people but He tabernacles in their midst. And this is the promise of the New Covenant believers in Revelation 21.3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. 
He's not in the tabernacle anymore. He's dwelling with us. He will dwell with them. They will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. People, the age in which we live today is the new covenant age. And the promise of the new covenant age is God will dwell with His people. He dwells with us. He lives with us. We don't have to go to a temple. We don't have to go anywhere. We, believers, Chris, you got to get this. Okay, hang on. We are sacred ground. Because we are the temple of the living God. We're sacred space. God dwells with us. We don't have to go anywhere. We don't have to go into a sanctuary. And it, it just frustrates me that people call this building in a, in a church, they call it the sanctuary. That's true if you're there, I guess, because you are the sanctuary. And if you take it in that room, that room becomes a sanctuary because you are the sanctuary of God, not some room somewhere. God dwells with us. That is, that's a, such an incredible benefit of the new covenant that people miss out on today. They're looking forward to something instead of enjoying something. Listen, believers, as I said, all theologians will agree that these seven feasts relate to these redemptive events. Pretty much everybody's going to agree with this. They fail to see the typology, though, of the 40-year exodus. They don't see that. Therefore, they're still looking for the fall feast to occur in the future. And by doing that, they separated the fall feast from the spring feast by thousands of years. That's unbiblical. That destroys the typology of Scripture. The main one being the exodus. And if you're familiar with the book of Hebrews, it makes it very clear that the Exodus and the 40 years are a type that is fulfilled in the New Covenant. The Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Tabernacles take place in the seventh month. The number seven is the number of perfection and fullness. And in these feasts, the believer is brought to the fullness of the Godhead. Now these seven feasts, I believe, are very strong support for the eschatological view of preterism. Because to understand the 40-year second exodus and the fall feast is to understand the eschatology of preterism is true. After that 40 years, these fall feasts were finished and it's done. The judgment, the second coming, the resurrection, they all took place after the 40 years after the death of Christ. The second exodus is complete, and so are we. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for the opportunity to take a look at your word. Father, I realize this subject is a little complicated, can be overwhelming, but I pray you'd give us the spirit of Bereans, Lord, that we would search the scripture to see if these things are so. We'd examine these feasts. We'd look at this 40-year period. We'd examine the fall feasts and see, were these truly fulfilled? And if they have not been fulfilled, Lord, then we still don't dwell in your presence. We still have to go somewhere to find you. Thank you, Lord, that they are fulfilled and you are tabernacling with us. Thank you for your grace to us, Lord. Amen.